0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I wanna thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
1: Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Exodus thirteen, seventeen through twenty-two, which can be found on page fifty eight in the Old Testament. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of the Egypt prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Sukkoth and camped at Ephem on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. If you'd like to read along with me, it can be found on page three of the New Testament. Let us listen now for God's word to us today. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished "'Throw yourself down, for it is written, "'He will command his angels concerning you, "'and on their hands they will bear you up, "'so that you will not dash your foot against a stone.' "'Jesus said to him, "'Again it is written, "'Do not put the Lord your God to the test.' "'Again the devil took him to a very high mountain,' and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This too is the word of the Lord.
0: We'll break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into the sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen continue on in this uh, Lenten journey, tracing the steps of the people of Israel as they have been liberated from under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. We're in Exodus 13 this morning, and we've read how the liberated yet still vulnerable people of God are being led by God into the wilderness, and they make a stop again on this passage to a new home, this time to a locale called Etham. The narrator tells us that Etham is, in fact, on the edge of the wilderness. The narrator also wants us to know that the people, as they are liberated, are still prepared for battle. For the Christian journey that we call faith and life, a journey that, from time to time, has us on the edge of the wilderness, and, in fact, also may have us right in the thick, and the heart of the wilderness, we too, I would like to suggest, must be prepared for battle. To borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, we're not talking about a physical conflict. We are talking about a battle against principalities and powers and ideologies in the world. Our New Testament text, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, is a battle text of sorts, a typical Lenten text and has a sitting ringside for this cosmic encounter between Jesus and Satan. Now, there are multiple approaches to the interpretation of this wilderness temptation story. I want to take one particular track in interpreting this text. I want to look at and focus on Jesus' demonstrated trust and fidelity to God in this wilderness moment. His trust and fidelity to God through the discipline of saying yes and saying no. That Jesus proves himself faithful in this wilderness moment as he exercised discernment in saying yes and saying no. This past Wednesday, we kicked off a three-week series called Living in the Virtual World. It's a a joint ministry effort between the youth ministry and our care ministry and the Samaritan Counseling Center. And it's designed to explore what technology does to our brains and what technology does in shaping our emotional life and our spiritual life and our psychological well-being. Kumar Krishan is on the clinical staff of the Counseling Center and he's facilitating these three weeks, again on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. in Fifefield, and at, at one point in this past lecture, he was talking about how important it is for parents to equip their teenage children with the tools and the skills to say yes and no, to equip them with the capacity and give them opportunities to succeed and fail, empower them to say yes and no. Uh, Mr. Kirshan is talking about older children, teenagers emerging into adulthood, not so much talking about about children who really need their parents to say yes and say no. You know if you have a child who has maybe received a Lego set, and maybe it's a large Lego set like the one Luke received for his birthday, the Lego Death Star, 4,000 pieces, without Katie or me telling him You need to stop and eat. It's now time to go to bed. A child will just keep pressing on and pressing on and pressing on. We're not talking about little children here. We're talking about kids that are becoming teenagers, emerging into adulthood, giving them the the power and teaching them what it means to say yes and no. Mr. Kirshan talked about some of the college students he works with at at Georgia Tech, so much of their teenage years were regimented and scheduled principally by their parents. Their parents said yes and no for them. They said yes to what they would participate in. They said no what they weren't going to participate in. They, they would set their schedule and they would manage their time for them. And, and he sees these students, most of them coming to him for, for therapy and for counseling after their first semester. Because they have struggled with the discipline and the executive function of saying yes and no to the right things. The parents did not do them any favors in, in taking control of the yes and no's of their life. They did it all for them. So all of a sudden, these, these college freshmen, semester one, they're on campus with this great sense and realization of their own autonomy. And one straight A, high achieving students, spiral out of control because they no longer have their parents with them to say yes and no. They don't go to class. They stay up until five in the morning binge watching Netflix or playing video games. They're excessive in substance abuse. They drop out of activities that they once loved. They don't have the skill or the function or even the experience to say yes and no to the right things. Uh, just last night, Katie and I had the privilege of attending the White Coat Gala, a fundraiser that supports Grady Hospital. These uh, festivities also highlight a significant milestone in the hospital's history. This June, Grady Hospital will celebrate its 125th birthday. Uh, many of you know the story if you've been in Atlanta for some time. For those of you new, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. A few years ago, the hospital was on the verge of of shutting down. Debt, administrative inefficiencies, and a lack of high quality leadership plagued the hospital. Uh, It was about to close, and that's when a few business leaders within the community were ready to say yes to Grady and say yes to Grady's future, an important future in the city of Atlanta. And they began to strategize and act in ways that would save the hospital. And it certainly was not an easy road. Those leaders would tell you that. But by God's grace, it has now become a hospital of choice for citizens in Atlanta and for those throughout the region here in the southeast. It really is one of the great resurrection and turnaround stories the city of Atlanta has ever seen. And part of the reason for the success was a clear understanding by the new leadership Of what to say yes to and what to say no to. They were going to say no to incompetence of every kind. They were going to say no to inefficiencies, but they were also going to say yes to Grady's historic mission as a hospital in our beloved city to be a hospital that would be for every citizen. No matter their socioeconomic background, no matter their race, no matter their zip code, no matter who they were or who they knew, the doors would be open if you were uninsured or insured, that, that there was a, a very strong and certain yes to this historic mission that propelled so many to support the saving of the hospital. You see, the ability to say yes and no to the right things is a critical life skill if one is going to experience personal and individual health in adulthood. But it's also true, the ability to say yes and no to the right things is critical for any community or collective or organization if they too are going to have health, if they are going to have a future. See, saying yes and saying no to the right things impacts us both personally and collectively both individually and communally. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that the same is true in the Christian life. The same is true in the Christian life. A thriving, healthy, and faithful Christian life, even in the wilderness moments that we experience, in many ways is linked to our choices, to our ability to say yes and no to the right things. The temptation story in Matthew 4 can be read, I think, through this lens, for Jesus is engaged in a moment of discernment. This is a moment where Jesus is exercising a spiritual maturity that has him saying both no and yes to the right things. Our beloved Joanna Adams, who is the interim pastor prior to my arrival, in a sermon she delivered some years ago back when she was pastoring it at Trinity, She said this in a sermon, when you look at God and what God says yes to, we can get an idea of what we ought to say yes to and an idea of what we ought to say no to. That's good encouragement. When we look at God, when we look at Jesus Christ and we see what Jesus says yes to and what he says no to, we get a good sense. Of what we ought to say yes to and what we ought to say no to. Even when we're on the edge of the wilderness. Even when we are in wilderness moments. Even when we are facing our own spiritual battles. And so we look to Jesus. What does he say yes to and what does he say no to? This first encounter with the devil. Jesus who has just completed a fast of 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously he's experiencing physical hunger. He is tempted to satiate that hunger through a miracle. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bread, of course, is not inherently evil. In fact, quite the opposite. Bread represents what we need physically to be sustained in our lives. What Jesus is saying no to is is not no to to this physical sustenance, but what he's saying no to is really, uh, on a deeper level, he's saying no to to a power at work in the world. It's, It's an ideology in the world that says bread alone is all there actually is. That there is no God beyond this world, there is nothing beyond this world that That you can't see, that you can't touch, that you can't experience with with your own senses. Uh, This is the, the doctrine of materialism at its best. It's a temptation that's not absent from our own journey, right? Excess, self-indulgence, experience-driven spending are symptoms of this materialism. And materialism isn't just about the stuff. It's not just about the greed. It's not just about consumerism. It is, friends, an ideology that's deeply rooted in atheism that bread is all there is. There's only bread alone and nothing else, material and matter is what life is all about. Jesus' no to the devil at this juncture is a no to that worldview. It's a no to that ideology, and maybe even a no to the practical atheism that exists in our own lives. It is a no that says to any life that wants to be lived in the shadow of God's grace, says, says no that this world is more than just bread. Yes, we need bread. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. But Jesus teaches us something about a yes. A yes to the very word of God. Isn't this a beautiful image that God is actually speaking in a world where it doesn't seem like God is speaking. In a world where we, we feel like maybe God has been muted out, blocked off because we've lived by bread alone. But the God of the universe is speaking right into our lives, into our wilderness moments, on the edge of the wilderness, in these spiritual battles, that God is alive. And that God is acting in such a way that provides the deep and profound sustenance that we need beyond what this physical world provides. In other words, friends, Jesus is saying, yes, I need God. I need God. The second temptation has the devil taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple located in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's the most significant and sacred place for the people. Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you, and and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. First, Jesus is saying no. Let's be very clear about this. He's saying no to the request that God has to prove God's self to him. Do you see that in the text? Well, you're the son of God. And if you're the son of God, God is going to protect you. God is going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about anything. You can just, you can just do this and jump and God will, will protect you. And Jesus says, No, don't put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus doesn't need God to prove God's self because God already has. You remember what precedes this text in Matthew 4, right before it, is Jesus' baptism. You know this story from your Sunday school days, from your personal devotion? You know this story? Jesus is baptized, he emerges out of the Jordan River, and a Holy Spirit like a dove descends upon him and words come from heaven and what do those words say this is my son the beloved with whom I am well pleased that's all Jesus needs he doesn't have to put God to the test because God has already definitively spoken a word about him he's already said how God feels about him and what God thinks there's nothing more to prove we don't have to ask God to prove God's self, for God has already told us in God's clear word to us through Jesus Christ how God feels. We we'll don't have to test God to see if we're loved. We we'll don't have to test God to see if we're accepted. We we'll don't have to uh, test God rather to see if, if, if we're righteous. God has already declared it so through Jesus Christ. You see, God has said yes to Jesus. And if you don't remember anything else from the sermon today, remember this deep and profound theological conviction in the life of our church. That, That when God says yes to Jesus at his baptism, he's really saying yes to you and to me. He's saying yes to all of us. He has declared to you and to me that we're beloved. And we don't have to test God. We don't have to prove ourselves to God I love the way 1 John 3 puts it. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And don't miss this last part. And that is what we are, period. Period. The word has been spoken. There's no need for God to prove God's self to us. God has already declared it so. Finally, in this third temptation... It takes place at another great height. It's it's on a very high mountain as the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God only. What is so intriguing to me about this no yes moment of discernment is that Jesus does not call into question the devil's capacity to fulfill such a promise. Isn't that interesting? I know we may look at the world and we may, we may think, well, maybe surely Satan or evil and its power, however we want to frame it, is in control of the kingdoms. But the scriptures clearly say, Psalm twenty-two eighteen, 18, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules the nations. But Jesus isn't interested in getting into this exegetical battle with the devil over what Psalm 22 actually means, Jesus doesn't say to the devil, hey, these kingdoms aren't yours to give. Because maybe there's something even greater at stake going on. More specifically, it's the question of worship. It's the question of what we are going to give ourselves to, first and foremost. Who or what will we worship? A scholar and social critic and theologian Jamie Smith describes us in an interesting way. He calls us liturgical animals. Liturgical animals. This grammar is far from correct, but he writes it this way, I think for a reason. We are creatures who can't not worship. And what we worship, he says, shapes what we love. This is fundamental to our human existence. What we worship is what we Love, if we worship God, we'll love God, and we will love God's kingdom. If we worship something else or someone else, we will love that thing and all that it stands for. I was talking with a member of our church this uh, past week after a meeting. It was, it was on Wednesday night. She, she pulled me into my office. She said, Tony, I need you to pray for me. I was waiting to hear what the prayer request was. The, the look on her face said it was something dire, something critically important. She said, Tony, I need you to pray for me because I cannot, for all the life of me, remove myself from all the political and social vitriol in the media and in social media and all the conversations that I'm a part of in every sphere of my life. She said, I simply cannot remove myself from those conversations. She said, I tried to give up social media for Lent and it lasted one day. said I would pray for her, but but that conversation left a mark on me. And I began to think, and this sort of hit me as I was watching Villanova lose yesterday. Participating in a liturgy of sorts. What liturgies occupy my time? If I'm a liturgical animal, what liturgies occupy occupy my time. Liturgy uh, from the Latin means the work of the people. It's something that, that we do each and every week. We, we work in worship. It's the work of the people, but it can also mean something that is repetitive, sort of a repertoire of ideas or phrases or observances that occupy our attention, that are demonstrated by us In our daily living and I thought about this conversation and I began to ask the question what liturgies shape my life what liturgies shape my life we have social media liturgies where we spend time and a ton of energy a ton of energy actively or passively engaging cultural and political banter and commentary we have economic liturgies where our daily attention and energy is consumed by the markets, by our portfolios, how we're going to spend our money this day or the next day or the day after that. We have social liturgies where our focus and energy is all about finding our place in the social ladder, how people perceive us, what judgments they make about us. All of us have liturgies that make up our lives. I want to be very clear about this. I'm absolutely not encouraging political, economic, or social disengagement. Far from it. We're Presbyterians, and if you're not Presbyterian, you're an honorary Presbyterian for the purposes of this sermon today. That that we're part of a tradition that engages. We engage in in the social and political and religious spheres of life and the economic spheres of life. We engage, but we do so By first saying yes, that we will worship God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we allow that liturgy to shape our engagement. How troubling is it? I'll say this about my own life and the things I've thought, the things I have said. How troubling is it that so many Christians in these difficult and challenging times in so many different ways act as if or speak as if they're not part of a liturgy of worshiping God. I hold a mirror up to my own life and I can evaluate my feelings and my thoughts and the words I say. And I can tell you that some of that is shaped more by the liturgies of the world than the liturgies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what this third temptation says is no to those liturgies. That we will fundamentally be shaped by the liturgy of the gospel of Jesus Christ a liturgy of grace a liturgy of forgiveness a a liturgy where we put others first a liturgy of sacrificial giving a liturgy of reconciliation and peace I'm convinced that the health of our spiritual lives is deeply connected to saying yes and no to the right things so let us say no to our practical atheism, to the materialism that says all there is is bread alone, let us say no to having God prove something to us as if God's word in Jesus Christ is not enough and no to the liturgies that have us worshiping and giving our time to other things. And may we accompany those no's with a yes, a yes to the word of God, a yes to the definitive act of God in Jesus Christ to save us and save the world and a yes to worship God alone to create a liturgy and to live in a liturgy where God is God for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so in our individual lives and in the life of the church. Amen. May the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen.